Howdy doody, everyone. Cam and Eamon here. It's unusual for us to do a pod intro, I mean, in general at the moment, but certainly when it comes to the music news, we just wanted to come in and just offer a quick trigger warning for the topic that we'll be discussing today. Yeah, we're going to be touching on sexual assault uh, at music festivals and sexual harassment uh, as well. So just a fair warning as you listen on, but some interesting information and initiatives ahead. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Yeah, and we're looking today. There's been some really good reporting in the ABC. Uh, you might have been hearing, to, uh, I think, today as well. Um, but I was reading this article and I thought it's really worth diving into a little bit. So we've got a, a survivor advocate, a sexual assault survivor advocate, um, who's urging the New South Wales government to mandate safe spaces at music festivals. And these aren't just safe spaces related to uh, how you might know them already. Like, you know, if you're uh, feeling unwell or, or uh, drug or alcohol-related issues, mental health issues, they're there already. Um, but this uh, advocate, her name is Sarah Williams. She is uh, pushing for specific sexual assault or harassment-related areas um, at festivals. Um, now, these would be like safe on-site secure areas uh, for people who have been impacted by sexual assault or harassment. Um, they'd have trauma-informed counselling, reporting facilities, and medical services too. So um, everything you kind of you, you would need to deal with those kind of situations. Um, she, uh, Sarah Williams, who's the founder that we mentioned, is she founded this uh, not-for-profit called What Were You Wearing? Um, following a drink spiking incident in 2021, which is terrible. And I think, um, most of us, most of us know someone, uh, most of us know multiple people who have been spiked. Uh, it's a relatively common occurrence, I think, at, which, which, you know, just goes to show that the scale of the problem that we're dealing with, yeah. um, terrible, terrifying experience. Um, uh, now during her work with this, um, Sarah Williams, the founder of What Were You Wearing and the initiator of all this, um, said that she's heard thousands of stories of abuse at music festivals. Um, and she's presented a petition with more than 20,000 signatures to state parliament, um, forcing a debate on her call for mandatory drink spiking and sexual assault training for security and bar staff in all licensed venues in New South Wales, which seems very, very sensible. Yeah, and it feels like it. when I did my RSA and RCG course back when I was at uni many, many years ago, not many, many, but just many years ago, but it feels like it should have been something that was included in that course and it may now be a, an element of that course. You know, you get taught about, you know, if their eyes look like this, then they're probably drunk or if they're behaving like this, then they're drunk and you shouldn't serve them. But there should also be, as she's pointing out here, you know, ways for to train staff to just alert them to you know i guess common ways or techniques or what this could you know the way it all happens because it is a huge issue and she's sort of saying it should be treated like a big issue as alcohol and drug prevention at these festivals yeah and i think i, I think that's fairly solid she wants to turn this same focus to improving safety at music festivals um, and she said that, that, that people at that staff at music festivals aren't trained properly to deal with reports um, or the right uh, resources aren't being offered, um, which is interesting. I tried to have a look for some data, for some statistics on incidences of sexual assault and harassment at music festivals in Australia. 
And what's really interesting about this is I found a study um, and in that study, they said, quote, currently there is an absence of research on the nature and prevalence of sexual assault, harassment and broader issues of public safety at music festivals, making it difficult to develop evidence-based policy. So instead of having data in Australia to lead off, they lent into some UK-based data, which I think culturally we can – we, can, we, we can't do a direct transplant, but we can assume that ballpark these figures would, would correlate roughly to what's experienced in Australia. Yeah, there are obvious similarities in culture, I think, between the UK and Australia. So, you know, we're not saying that these are figures will be perfectly represented here in Australia to what we're reading out, what the UK stats are. But, yeah, as you mentioned, ballpark, I think it should do an adequate job um, in representing what might be going on here. And, of course, this is obviously what's reported as well, which is another huge issue with sexual harassment and assault is that it's just often goes unreported. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. That's it. Another massive point, as you say, Cam, they're like, for, for, I don't want to throw random data out there. I'd numbers out there, so I'm not going to, but for every single 1%, you know, or one person that that reports, you know, you there, there is a, a significant number that aren't as well. And that's the case across the board with sexual assault and harassment and, that's why when we see these upticks in numbers, there's always this debate of, of like, okay, is there more or are people just now feeling more empowered to actually start reporting and documenting that these things have happened to them? Because again, um, you know, like I know a, a, a bunch of, of women who have had incidences, uh, you know, across the spectrum of sexual harassment and assault, um, whether it's out and about or at festivals or at gigs, it, it happens a lot. And how many of those are just like a – you know, it's. I'm not going to get anywhere with it. It's going to be too much, you know, turmoil to go through to try and, you know, go through the full process, all of those kind of things. A lot of them just don't even worry about reporting it. Um, so the data is skewed in the wrong direction. We don't actually know how, how prevalent this actually is. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But this, this report does say that in the UK uh, that um, the study which was conducted by YouGov in 2018 reported that 30% of young women and 14% of young men had experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault at a music festival with unwelcome, forceful dancing and verbal harassment being the most common experiences. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, terrible numbers, not necessarily surprising. And as you said, you could definitely add some to that for those that are not reported. Um, now, back to Sarah Williams and her what, with, what were you wearing um, not-for-profit. They've attended more than 30 festivals across Australia since creating their own safe space program. Um, and through that, they kind of offer the service that she's calling for free of charge through state government support. Of course, this is a lot harder, <coughs> excuse me, to do like – uh, no doubt they're they're relying off grant or funding application, which rolls over and over and over. So what she's calling for in terms of um, a New South Wales legislative perspective is for the the act, the music festivals act, to be changed to incorporate elements of this or mandate them for festivals. Um, and she says her organisation has received quite scary anecdotes from festival goers. Um, and believe that the support services that are available at our festivals are too busy to properly address sexual violence. And I don't think anyone's saying here that there isn't the the will or intention on the part of festivals. We know um, with just about every festival in this country, there's a really, like the community around these are good and they want the best for their patrons. You know, that's music lovers and they want the best for the people that are at their events. But it's hard to run all these things. 
Um, and an interesting point that she she made is that she's kind of had a hard time getting them into festivals because they feel like it's a bad look. So to have a, a, a sexual assault and harassment area or safe mm. space at a festival, people uh, think and organisers might think, okay, well, if that's there, then, you know, it's just going to say that this happens at our event when we don't want that kind of PR. Um, but but it does happen. You know, this is an accepted reality. Uh, and Sarah Williams says, we've noticed uh, that it's actually the opposite. It makes people feel safer uh, knowing they have that space to go to and that, that lifeline if they need it. Yeah, the victims of this, you know, the least you can do is provide a space for them where they, they can feel safe, they can get the support, they can speak to people about the incident as well, as opposed to not putting a tent because of the image that it might have, even though, you know, as we touched on, the data isn't quite there, but just anecdotally you speak to anyone who's attended a music festival and they will say they either saw it or they witnessed it or experienced it themselves. So we do know that it does happen. So to try and turn a blind eye, I think we should have learned by now that that's not the correct approach to many things, but especially when it relates to this. Yeah, yeah, it isn't. And, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting debate and, there's, you know, a lot of things in here that I considered even that, that image thing, that they don't want the image of mm. it. But to have those spaces, we know they help make people feel safer across the board with those type of issues when it comes to heart minimization. Um, yeah, so with the festival season coming, uh, what Sarah Williams and what were you wearing want is the New South Wales Festivals Act of 2019 to mandate sexual assault services. Um, the potential amendment, she says, is, a, quote, an area for external sexual assault su- uh, service on site for reporting and harm minimization, which I think hearing this sounds like a very common sense suggestion and something that would be very you know, helpful and useful. And I feel like also having having these things visible uh, for – it could be discouraging for, for perpetrators too, right? Because it's like we're not pretending this doesn't happen. And we know so often with this kind of uh, offending that they kind of – they operate knowing they can do this in the shadows. And it's big crowds, you know, get away with it. Where are they going to do it? Go, who are they going to tell? What are they going to do? When they see that walking past it, they might think twice about whatever – whatever actions, whether planned or not, uh, that, that that they had considered or would would end up doing, having that in the back of your mind, knowing that it could work as a deterrent as well. And either way, we need to support victims as much as we can. Yeah, most definitely. And I th- it's worth noting as well, you touched on the image as well, that some festivals, such as yours and ours, uh, they actually have like a, a third-party uh, a partner, if you will, to sort of deal with mental health episodes uh, and sexual assault. Uh, and yours now, as they use DanceWise, in a statement they said that their legal status means that they do not have to report sexual assaults to the police unless the client wants to make a formal report. However, they have direct lines with both medical and police should an issue arise that requires escalation. Yeah, and DanceWise, uh, it must be said, are very, very good if you've ever come across the DanceWise. People at the DanceWise tent at a music festival, they are very, very helpful and supportive crew in those, and they do really good work. But, um, yeah, absolutely can see a place for something like this uh, helping at music festivals. I mean, and this also comes on the day while we're talking harm minimization that we said at the top of the show, Mm. 77 uh, organizations, uh, health organizations and public organizations in Victoria uh, got together and hit up the government in Victoria to uh, legalize pill testing. 
And they said no. They <laughs> said no. We're not, we're not going to do it. Which when the Victorian government are the ones saying no, you feel like it's just a massive uphill battle to to get this passed. And you, you mentioned about the image thing with the, the sexual assault sort of safe zones at these festivals. I wonder if a lot of this, you know, because the data is there, like the, the proof is definitely in the pudding when it comes to pill testing. I wonder if it just comes back to liability for the government. They don't want to say that this is safe to use and then someone use it and there's a, a mishap and there's still a drug-related death at a festival and then that family turns on the government and says, well, you legalise this. You, they said it was safe and it still caused a death. I wonder if the litigation sort of comes into play a bit for the government. I mean, there's probably something of that nature bouncing through their heads for sure. But it's, I mean, if you're out there listening, turning your nose up at the idea of field testing, let me say that the evidence disagrees with you. We have so much evidence now. It's so much studies, both in Australia and across the world. Every single one of them says, if you want to keep people safer, then you need to implement something like this. The rest of the world did it decades ago. We're finally catching up. And when you have 77 organizations to do with health and public safety all coming together to petition a government to just listen to the evidence and implement this, they should probably do that, you would think. Um, particularly, and I think this is something we might touch on as we get a bit closer into summer in the coming months, but we're in for a very hot summer and mm. we know that the combination of heat and recreational drug use, like it or not, it's going to happen, uh, can absolutely lead to death and can definitely increase those chances uh, for people who don't know uh you know, don't have the the information to keep themselves safe or the resources or all of those things that do help. Um, and we've seen this happen in the past. So it's a concerning summer to be heading into having governments still rejecting this. And in New South Wales, we've had Chris Minns reject it, but say, we'll do a drug summit to seek evidence or, or whatever. And it's like, you've done that. We've had so many coronial yeah. inquests, so many coroner's reports, so many parliamentary inquiries. They all say the same thing. So why do we need to gather more evidence for governments to not listen to, you know? Uh, and and while we wait for this, unfortunately, we run the risk of people dying who don't need to. Yeah, and there was sort of out of a lot of those, you know, inquiries and inquests and all the data that sort of come back to the government, which they've gone, oh, that's nice. Let's do a bit more research. I don't know whether they're waiting to find something that will support their current stance. So I don't know what they're doing with it, but... A lot of that evidence comes back. There are sort of three main suggestions. One of them is to legalise pill testing at music festivals. One of them is just complete decriminalisation. And another one is the re to reduce the amount of the police presence at these festivals as well, because that is when you get the, the overdoses, which you see where everyone walking into a festival see a line of police and the sniffer dogs and they go, oh, crap, and then they just consume their day's worth in... 10 seconds and then that's obviously when the overdoses do occur so those three recommendations have come back i would multiple times to the government but they're still turning a blind eye or waiting for something else to come along that they can implement i don't know but it doesn't feel like like i said at the start of this little segment was it's a massive uphill battle to get it passed yeah yeah and it's i mean you wouldn't call you you wouldn't call bold leadership simply following uh evidence when you're designing policy but it feels that way now we need a bold mm. leader we need leaders to be bold and follow the evidence <laughs> and hopefully help keep people safe. I mean, they can nut out so much as governments. I'm sure they can find a way to develop policy that doesn't mean they get chased after for litigation if anything goes wrong. We know the way these things are designed in the first place is that 
first and foremost, they ask you not to take it. That's their advice. Yeah. And then after that, they go, if you're going to, this is what you need to know about this. And that's that. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we've spoken about it many times that we can continue to talk about the effectiveness of those pill testing tents that the trials have already taken place here in Australia and overseas as well. But uh, that will conclude the rather lengthy music news. Get it all at www.homebrewed.au. Why is it not your internet homepage right now? Yeah, if it's not, I, I don't see any other reason why you would need to use the internet other than to access <laughs> our content. And if there is another reason, I'd like you to email it to me and I can deem whether it's worthy or not. And that email can be found at www.homebrewed.au. Ta-da! Right,